From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, earlier this month, we were talking with the minister in BC in charge of employment. Harry Baines joined the show to talk specifically about app-based gig workers, things like ride hail services, food delivery services. And at that time, he talked about what his ministry was looking at as far as perhaps bringing in minimum pay standards, making it more fair for workers in that industry. Here's just a little of what he had to say at the time. Regardless what type of work you do, that you must enjoy uh, basic standards and protection that all workers enjoy in British Columbia. So I think uh, the only way to do that was to go and talk to the industry, talk to those workers who are experiencing those challenges on a daily basis. And it's not a 7 to 3.30 job. Uh, you have a two coffee breaks and lunch break. Uh, and then you come home after working with a single employer. Uh, it is a, a quite different economy, and uh, these workers face uh, uh, quite a few challenges uh, when it comes to minimum wage, whether they are paid, when it comes to health and safety protection, and also whether they are, um, you know, there's a transparency how they are paid and how they are treated. All right, that was Minister Harry Baines speaking on this program earlier this month. Yesterday, we got a bit of an update on that file. The B.C. government saying it is actually proposing some new employment standards. These will be for gig workers. They include things like tip protection, workers' compensation coverage, and a guaranteed minimum wage. So how are people responding to this? Joining me now is Susanna Skidmore, the president of the B.C. Federation of Labour. Thank you so much for making time to Today. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on the proposals, the proposed changes when it comes to these types of employment standards for gig workers? Uh, yeah, look, we're, you know, we're relieved that the government is acting uh, on these issues. We've been pressing uh, for years for action on this file. Uh, but, you know, I, I you know, would be lying to say we have some deep concerns about uh, you know, where this pro- approach lands and feel it does fall short, especially on issues such as paid sick leave and wages. Uh, you know, there is, there's some good progress in here as well around safety and workers' compensation, pay and destination transparency uh, and termination resolution issues and all of that. Um, but, you know, there are definitely some areas we feel this falls short and we're going to keep fighting for uh, full protections for these workers to have the same rights that all workers in B.C. have. Uh, so when you talk about wages, is that one of the areas where you think it still falls short? Yeah, look, you know, the B.C. Federation of Labour has been um, advocating for living wages for people in all of British Columbia. We know uh, the cost of living is extraordinary here and workers should be able to make wages in the jobs that they do to afford them to live in the communities that they work in, uh, you know, and so we're concerned about where this has landed and we're not even sure it's, you know, will get them um, above the, the minimum or barely above the minimum wage at, at where the government's landed on this one. Uh, and when we look at that as well, I know that the proposals are that to, to, to bring it up to at least the minimum wage or that if if a worker's earnings don't meet those minimum standards, then the companies, these app companies, would be responsible for topping up the difference. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Is there a way to make that happen? Uh, you know, the, the workers have pr- proposed some creative solutions. For us, it's like when you start work in the morning, you should start 
getting paid. Uh, so when you log into the app, uh, you start work. And when you log out of the app, that's when you stop work. And you, workers should be getting paid for that whole time uh, that they're working. They're they're sitting and waiting for rides and all of that. It works in other industries that way. Um, it, you know, the minister's not wrong. It's a, it is a bit of a unique um, work environment. But, you know, bring people to table, especially the workers that work in that industry, um, and let them... Uh, help be part of the solution in a productive way. I think I think that the solution to this might actually be easier uh, than suggested. Um, some of the reaction that's coming back or coming in from some of these app-based companies, I know there was one one of the food delivery apps said that that there is the potential that with the the premium, the higher wage set for this group of workers, that could make things more expensive. That that's going to be passed to the consumers. That could potentially lead to less business for restaurants and 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 not as many tips for the workers. What are your thoughts on the, on that reaction from one of the the food delivery apps? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, this has played out in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of jurisdictions, and uh, it's not actually come to pass that way in other jurisdictions where they've actually legislated uh, some rules and regulations for workers in this industry. Uh, it's not, the burden has not fallen on uh, the companies and the people who use the services. Uh, it's not actually worked that way. These multinational corporations have been making uh, huge profits off the backs of the working people in this province. Um, and, you know, we think that they should be p- paid a fair living wage and they should be compensated adequately for the work uh, that they do, which has now become such an essential part of our economy here in British Columbia. Is part of the challenge, though, the fact there are a lot of workers, and I know there were some of the numbers were put out uh, from the ministry yesterday, but there are a lot of workers, thousands of workers who have agreed to work in the conditions they have currently, and, and the companies might argue, well, where where's the problem? that needs to be fixed because workers have signed up and are already doing this? Well, the reality is is people are going to do what they need to do to feed their families and pay their bills. And so, uh, you know, there are jobs out there that that, um, people are taking to to try and make the best living. But these workers, as you uh, will hear uh, from talking to them and listening to some of their interviews, we've met with hundreds of workers over uh, over the last year and talked to them about their scenarios. They're working long days, 18 hours often, uh, and they're, they're not bringing in minimum wage. They're not able to feed their families. So they're working because they have to work in that industry because that's where the jobs are right now. Um, but they're not, uh, you know, being able to be compensated in a way that actually affords them to live uh, a decent life here in British Columbia. And aside from the the wages and that part of uh, what was being addressed by the province, uh, also bringing in coverage of workers' compensation, how important is that? It's huge. You know, we saw um, some pretty graphic situations happen for workers in this industry. Uh, We were doing some work with one of the drivers, Amin Sood, who was attacked viciously in his car uh, you know, and, and no recourse for him. And there was a situation with some uh, food delivery folks as well, uh, you know, where they're not able to access, they were not able to access the workers' compensation system. And so if there's no 
ability, you know, you go to work, a worker should be safe and have the right to be safe at work. And if at the very worst case scenario, they get injured at work, especially through a violent situation, like the ones we're talking about, they should have some protection um, and the system should cover them. So we're relieved that the, the minister has made it clear that these folks will be uh, covered by workers' compensation, as they should be, as they always should have been, uh, because the worker has the right to be safe at work, and they also have the right to those protections. So this is critical for these workers. All right. Susanna Skidmore, I appreciate so much you making the time for us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, you likely know, if you've ever used Amazon, you know you can buy pretty well anything off that platform. But what about a new car? Well, starting next year, yes, you will be able to buy a car on Amazon. And it's the first time cars have been offered on that platform. The company has announced it has struck a deal with Hyundai, and that will allow dealerships to sell their cars through that site. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Zach Spence automotive journalist and with Motormouth Canada. Zach, so great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for calling. Uh, how big of a deal is this that Hyundai and Amazon have teamed up and you can buy a car on that platform? Well, one of the biggest um, pain points for anybody shopping for a car, unfortunately, and dealers don't like to hear this, is the dealer experience. People loathe going in, negotiating, um, they're forced uh, or they feel like they're being forced to upsell to things they maybe don't want. Uh, it's all a battle and they come out feeling like they didn't get a good deal and they would just like to buy the car and drive it away and not have to deal with, with any of that stuff. So your studies show that's a major pain point in the whole purchase experience. So doing it online which um, actually uh, they kind of pioneered in Canada, and I'll get to that in just a second, uh, with Hyundai and Genesis. Um, They're basically uh, going around that pain point. So you would go online, you would pick your car, the price is set, and then the dealer is still involved, but they're a fulfillment center. So you basically go to the dealer and pick up your car, and if you need it serviced, you go back to that dealer, but the deal is done online and i guess amazon is the the one trying to facilitate that Uh, hyundai is the first brand that they're going to be doing this with and one of the reasons why it's kind of tricky to do this direct to the consumer sales model is that dealerships have sales agreements with the manufacturers so think of a big dealership you might drive by like carter gm on on um on low heat highway that's a huge dealership they have a contract with general motors to sell those cars and these kinds of agreements are all throughout north america so one way of getting around that and doing this direct to the customer is um, is this model where amazon does it and the, the dealer is still involved the dealer is still selling the car it's just you're going and picking it up at the dealer after the deal is done and I, I totally get what you're saying about the dealership experience and uh, people feeling that they're not getting a great deal or feeling that they're really being pressured and that. But isn't there also something about that in that you want to actually go and see the vehicle and touch the vehicle and sit in it to, and get a, a really good feel for it before you make a purchase that is a lot of money? Well, 
Jill, you would be shocked how many people buy cars and they don't drive them, which I think is lunacy. Uh, I'm in the business. I'm in the business of reviewing cars and telling people what you know. My wife and I, Andrea, do them together. Uh, what we like and we don't like about them. But I, I would never go in and buy a shirt or a sweater without trying it on. Never mind a fifty, sixty, eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollar car. People do it, and I'm shocked. But I encourage anybody if you're thinking about buying a car. Uh, go to the dealer. You might not fulfill the deal there, but but look at the car, sit in the car, make sure you fit in the car. Basic stuff is like, do you actually fit in the car? Some people don't even try that. It's shocking. <laughs> that I, I'm amazed by that because even even the visibility, the cars are so different, vehicles are so different, and depending on your height and your size, that some some of them you can see out of and feel safe, and others you can't see a thing. Well, one of the problems we've had through the pandemic and the uh, shortage of vehicles, there's been a real shortage of vehicles, is that unfortunately uh, dealers are not stocking cars or they're just not keeping any on the lot. They're selling them all. So someone comes in and I say, I want to drive this car. I'm going to take it for a test drive. And they say, we don't even have one. Um, it's, uh, you know, if it comes off the truck, it's already sold. So uh, the smart dealers are keeping one or two back to, you know, their mainline vehicles that people really want uh, for people to drive. I just want to come back to this kind of sales model. Genesis is the luxury brand of Hyundai, and Hyundai's the first one to do this with Amazon in the United States. In Canada, because they had no Genesis dealerships, that's their luxury brand they rolled out, I'm guessing it's about five years now, they had no dealers. So they thought, what can we do where we can get the vehicle sold and to people? Um, so what they did was this online model. You would go on the Genesis Canada website. You would see the, you know, I want a blue car. I want it with a tan interior. And you would, uh, you would find one. And then they would fulfill that the same way Amazon's going to do it with a dealer. In the case of Genesis, most of them are owned by Hyundai dealers. And they don't actually have storefronts or they haven't had storefronts. They would do this direct to uh, you delivery model, and that's the way they got around the fact they didn't actually have a brick and mortar dealership. They're starting to build them now, but it was successful in Canada. Uh, It spread to the United States, and I kind of wonder if that had some influence on what they're doing with Amazon. Interesting. I noticed that too, starting to see the Genesis vehicles. You don't see very many of them, but I I think they they stuck out to me. Wasn't it a Genesis that Tiger Woods was driving when he crashed his vehicle and walked (laughs) away from it? Yeah, I, I made the joke. I, Tiger Woods was just trying to put something in the in the navigation system. It was clumsy, but yeah, I, and that that was the vehicle that he was in. Unfortunately for for them, but he survived. And to their credit, they made a safe car. Uh, but but yes, Genesis is um, an interesting story. You know, that coming out with a luxury brand is very tough because you're up against history. Mercedes Benz, the oldest car company in the world, Cadillac, over a hundred years old. You know, uh, BMW you know, being making performance sedans for, and cars for, for decade after decade. So breaking into be a luxury brand when you have all of this history is really tough. It's going to be a slow growth, but they're doing interesting things like this direct-to-the-consumer model. Uh, they're already doing in Canada, and the people uh, that have bought vehicles from uh, Genesis Canada, uh, the reports are they love, they absolutely love not having to deal with the dealership. They love that it's a one, one price. There's no negotiating. They love that they drop the vehicle off at your house. They love that they pick it up when it needs to be serviced. That is the future. So the dealer's not going to be cut out of the equation. They're going to be fulfillment centers. They're going to be service centers. 
And this model, I think, is probably going to spread. Well, and like you said, too, there's nothing stopping people from, even if you don't know for sure the car you want, not from from doing your due diligence, going to a dealership. I mean, the pressure is taken away because in that scenario, a dealer can be as as pushy as, as they want to. If you know you're leaving there and not purchasing the vehicle, you're just there to check it out. And then you're going home to order it online. Well, back to Genesis again, because I think that this is really the model moving forward. We still have these dealer uh, uh, contracts, right? So these, they're, they're still bound to be dealerships. But what they do is you say, okay, I want to buy, I want to try uh, the, you know, the, the, the SUV that Tiger Woods was uh, driving. And they say, you, you go online and they bring it to your house and they say, Jill, this is the GV80. What do you think? Let's go for a drive. And they have somebody that takes you for a drive. They explain all the features. They walk around the vehicle. If you have any questions, these are uh, product experts. So they do a one-on-one test drive with you and then they go away and you say, well, I think I like that. Let's get that one. And then you order it and they deliver it back to your house. Not the same one, a brand new one, but that's a way of getting around this where there's no cars. If they had a fleet of cars, their people could test drive them and you had product experts that are really knowledgeable and they're not salespeople. They're just product experts. That's another model where people can get the information. They can see if they fit in it. They see if they like it and then they can decide on their own time whether they want to buy it. Interesting. Now, are there any kind of rules in there? And that I was reading about this and, and looking in the states that there are some rules in, in some of the states or a lot of the states that limit or ban manufacturers from selling directly to consumers. But is there anything like that that's stopping this in Canada? Well, we're seeing it already. I mean, Tesla's doing that and um, uh, Genesis is doing that. But like I said, the way they're getting around this is because you have these uh, agreements and you have these sales arrangements and it's done state by state in the United States. So this this dealer uh, um, contract that they have, um, so say you're Bob's Chevrolet in the middle of Illinois, you have a dealer contract. But like I said, they're not selling you the car. They're actually selling you the car online, but the deal is done still at the dealership. You go and pick up the car, um, and, and I'm not sure if you do the paperwork there or not. That part hasn't been, um, you know, exposed yet, but that's, that's the way it's going. So you can have your cake and eat it, too. You can still have the dealer network, and the people who have invested millions of dollars in these dealerships are going to be able to get sales leads and people to buy their cars, but the Internet's doing it. Amazon's doing it. And do you think this is going to take off, that more car brands, and we're going to see more, more of them do this? Well, the, yes, I think you, the, with the success of Tesla doing uh, direct to the consumer, I mean, you go online and you order a Tesla and then you, you know, you, you pick it up and it's ready to go. I think that 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 pain point that I talked about at the very beginning um, is this is one way around it. And I think that consumers just do not like the experience. I think, you know, uh, a lot of car dealers have really got to look themselves in the mirror long and hard and come and say, well, am I really doing the what's best for the customer or am I doing what's best for my bottom line? And often it seems that the dealers are doing things for their good and not for the good of the customer. And people don't like that. They don't like to be taken advantage of. They don't like the experience. They come out of there feeling dirty. They're like, I just got sold all these things. I don't know if I need them. And then they contact me and they say, do I need all this stuff? And I'm like, no, you don't need all that stuff. You were just, you were sold a bunch of stuff you don't need. And um, so I think that's one way of getting around this is that you can take that pressure point away. The dealers probably initially will be resistant to this, 
but it could be better for them in the long run if you're getting rid of that part of the uh, negotiation and everything that people just don't like. No, it's, uh, it sounds definitely like it will have its benefits. Zach, I'm just curious about one more thing, and I know because you review cars and you know a lot about them. When somebody is going to purchase a vehicle, do you find, do they generally know what they want? Does somebody have an idea of the model or the kind of car, or, or is it ever that somebody's going out there and they're open to suggestion and looking at different brands and really, really don't have it narrowed down? It's both. I think there's people who do so much research and they watch videos like ours and they get a lot of information and they go into the dealer. And often we hear this many times that the, they go in there and they've read so much, they've watched so many videos. They know more about the car than the salesperson might. You know, you might have a new, a new salesperson who's only been there for a week and they go in there and they know everything about it. And then you've got other people that go in there and they get sold the car because it's got a shiny uh, paint color and a good stereo. So there's, there's a whole, gulf of people there in between um and 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 that's what you're dealing with the the best piece of information i can give people is do your homework you know watch our videos of course but read and watch other people's videos and get a a broad spectrum of information uh people are are really doing more homework nowadays i mean you just think about yourself jill if you're going away on vacation you want to buy a new camera you just don't go into london drugs and buy the first camera you see you do a little bit of research you go online and you look at reviews and you say, what's the best travel camera? And then, and, then you, and then you might go into London Drugs and they have it there. But I think that's what people are doing more and more. All right. Very interesting how things are changing in the industry. Zach, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for being with us on the show today. Well, yesterday we talked about some concerns that were being raised. We chatted with Sam Ferris, who is a local broadcaster, also a local actor, and she owns property in Merritt. One of her homes was destroyed in the flooding that happened two years ago. It was exactly two years ago on November 15th, and she was raising some concerns she had with what she said was a bit of a lack of response from the city. Well, Michael Getz is joining us now, the mayor of Merritt, to talk a bit more about this. And Mayor Getz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. Thank you again. Always, always a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I'm so glad you were able to join us because I am curious. It's been a couple of years. How would you say uh, the recovery is going in Merritt? Well, the recovery in Merritt is going, um, you know, slow. Uh, we have our DMAF application in with the federal government. Uh, we put that in in July uh, the second of this year, the fund had no money in it for almost 13 months, so there was nothing anyone could do on that. Uh, we've had great input from the provincial government to help with certain items, such as the bridge and some diking to protect the community. But the DMAF application promises that were made by the federal government and the minister um, have not come through, even though our application has been in now since July. And we haven't even received the courtesy of a response that they received it. They give us no information. Our uh, Recovery Operations Centre, our ROC, has four members in it that work on this every single day. And uh, they are on it constantly, and uh, they work on the flood mitigation every single minute of every single day. And we are moving slowly but surely. We received the money for the bridge. We received some money for the funding to take care of the dike around the fresh water and sewer so we don't ever have to evacuate the community again. But the lion's share to take us up to Q200 levels is... uh, with the federal government and we are working with the provincial government to help us uh, 
push them along as well so they'll start to process our application. Uh, so it's it's a lack of funding or it's the the uh, slowdown the delay is because of the federal funding? Yes, I mean this is a 169 million dollar project and the city has an annual tax budget of 9.5 million which we have to pay everything on. So that would take 15 years of our budget to build these dikes. Um, we simply don't have it, so we do need some help. So does Princeton need this help? So does Abbotsford need this help? And so does Grand Forks need this help? And now Cash Creek, we're all kind of in the same boat. Uh, so we're all clamoring for funding uh, that we were told would be there. And um, we're in line like everybody else, waiting for the DMAF funding to come in so we can fix these dikes and uh, get the people who have properties that are in jeopardy bought out. Uh, and when you talk about that, because that was one of the other concerns that was put forward, was the promise or, or the talk of the buyout program for people who saw their homes destroyed, that their homes that they're not able to live in anymore. Um, and, and some wondering, what happened to the buyout program? Well, first of all, the buyout program wasn't for anybody that got flooded out in the flood. The buyout program are for the people who the new dikes will have to take their land, their land will have to be expropriated. There's 28 properties. Those are the only people that will receive buyout money. There was never a promise to buy everybody that got flooded out. In July, was flooded out. Nobody made me a promise to buy my home. I was out of my home for 24 days and 12 months of rehab to get my house back to where it was. Nobody promised to buy my home out. Uh, the only people that will be bought out are in the area where the dikes will have to be on the land that they now live on, and they'll be bought out. There's 28 properties that are a full buyout and seven properties that are partial. So not everybody that got flooded was going to get a buyout, and I have no idea where that information came from. But I guess if you lived in Merritt and you followed the bouncing ball, you'd know that. Right. And and that did seem uh, that that makes more sense what you're saying, because even in other areas where we've seen flooding and we've seen uh, the, these kinds of disasters, uh, it's not as though uh, the disaster money comes in or money is suddenly made available to flood to, to buy every home back. It's that they become insurance cases and, and other things are going on. But but that does make a lot more sense. Well, also, too, if you're going to live within 150 feet of a river like I do, and one of Ms. Ferris's properties are, you might want to have home insurance. Not having home insurance or overland water insurance or flood insurance is completely on you. That's a decision you made not to insure your property. Now you live with the results, right? Is it possible, though, in some areas, that even areas that are that close to a river or a waterway, that that type of insurance isn't available? No, it's not. In my community, it's not because... Our flood zone went from 300, uh, 130 homes to 1,274. I just had to reinsure my home because my insurance provider went broke uh, after the flood, and I can no longer get flood or overland water because I'm in now in a new 200-year flood zone. So I have no water or flood protection now. No, that's got to be a bit concerning, isn't it? Especially given what you just said about the delay and, and the fact that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to shore up those dikes and make the area safe again. Yes, and that's why I uh, I, I testified on the uh, Standing Committee on Transport Infrastructure and Communities, the fourth Parliament first session on May 4th, bringing forward five inconsistencies with DMAF that need to be corrected. And I testified on the floor five recommendations now that the government uh, has accepted and are going to be dealing with to uh, work on my five recommendations. And one of the recommendations was affordable and full cover insurance for all. Uh, Because right now what's happening is larger companies 
such as, um, you know, BCAA or whatever, are buying up the smaller ones. And instead of having more of a choice to buy your home insurance, you're now going to be dictated what your price will be and what they will cover and what they won't. And uh, that's one of the things I brought forward to the federal government, also to the FCM president, Scott Pearson, and my address at UBCM when I was down at UBCM for the Mid-Sized Community Forums, that that needs to change and we need to have our citizens protected and have affordable and uh, uh, insurance for all, whether you're in a flood zone or not. Right. And are you confident that that could or will happen? Well, they have to debate it because it was a recommendation that went to the parliament and they have to debate it. I have no idea whether they will accept it or not. And that's where I'll be relying on my uh, member of parliament, Dan Elvis, to um, stick handle that through for me with my my backing. And one of the other things that I've also done is I've contacted Minister Ma, Minister Kang, um, Jackie Taggart and uh, Minister Cullen to help me push the federal government forward for uh, responsive and immediate flood protection for all our communities that have been flooded because I'm going to need provincial push. One of the problems with DMAF, Jill, is the fact that DMAF is federally run, but they have to have the provincial input to have it happen. So the province has to approve what we're doing, and then it goes back to the feds, and then the feds say, okay, we're going to do it, and the province says, okay, we need the money, and and then it's up to the feds to send the money and start working on it. That's where another one of my recommendations came in. Either the federal government handles the whole DMAF project, or they give it to the provincial. And one of the things that DMAF does not do is they do not do land buyouts. And that's also a problem and one of my recommendations that should be changed as well. All right. And one other question, and this was actually something, there was a a CBC story that talked about documents that came to light about knowing that there were concerns with flooding and that flooding would happen if if measures weren't taken to to shore up the riverbanks or to deal with that, and that these concerns Mm -hmm. kind of came to light several years ago. How how do you respond to the the documents that show that there was this potential for disaster? Well, first of all, I wasn't sitting as mayor when that when that study was done. Um, I came in after. That was done done by Mr. Ben Parfit, which I helped him with that study. You'll see some re- reference to me in that study. Now, what I have to tell you, Jill, is um, th- there was a lack of uh, government uh, and city, uh, you know, looking after the dikes, and that's why we've asked for a provincial diking program. There is no process for that at this point. A city can't be expected to cover that because we don't have the funds or the expertise to do it. So we send a guy from the forestry to walk up and down a dike and go, well, this looks good to me. We need a trained hydrologist and everybody else to work on that. So the province needs to take over dike mitigation, and we need to have a diking strategy. But I can tell you on the night of the flood, we get a little excited here when our water goes up to about 150 meters per second, cubic meters per second. Our, our, uh, we ended up that night with 369 cubic meters per second, three times as much. And the only reason it stopped at 369 is because the meter washed away. Hmm. We were as high as 425. It doesn't matter what the dikes would have looked like. There's nothing that would have contained the water at that time. So um, this brought to light the fact that the provincial, province, the provincial government needs to have a diking strategy. The term orphan dike should be no term that should ever be heard. Orphan means nobody's looking after it. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, we are pushing for a, uh, a provincial diking strategy because we have to have it. Uh, this community depends on it. Princeton depends on it. Lots of communities depend on it. And so uh, we are all pushing for that.
Right, exactly. And, and even uh, communities uh, in Metro Vancouver, like you say, there are many, many communities that uh, would be dependent on that. Uh, Mayor, one other question, and this was a concern that was raised as well, saying that uh, some of the homeowners uh, that are, are not living in those homes, that nobody is living in them because uh, because of the damage from the flooding, the homeowners are being fined for having weeds, for having overgrown lawns. Is that happening in Merritt? They, what ends up happening in Merritt is we have a bylaw, and a bylaw uh, we have an unsightly bylaw, and your your property needs to stay in a certain shape. Our bylaw officer is driven by complaint. So Miss Ferris's neighbors complained; they were concerned that she hadn't touched her property, that it was overgrown, it was becoming a fire hazard. We simply did not go after Miss Ferris. She simply just did not take care of her property, and she was asked to do something about it. Uh, I've never personally talked to her. We've talked through emails, and I suggested that maybe she hire a local landscaper to go in and buzz them down. That's all that was needed. But she decided not to do any of that. So uh, we had 48 unsightlies that went out last year, and a lot of them were in the flood area. And uh, only 47 were taken care of, and only one is outstanding, and that's Ms. Ferris. So it is a bylaw that we have that whether you're living in the property or not, you need to take care of the outside. Uh, nobody has the right to leave a property, go to another city, and then just let their property overgrow. And and uh, I, I sorry, I think I said that was the last question. I did have one other question, and this was brought up as well. Um, uh, Sam Ferris and maybe some of the other residents as well, uh, she mentioned, were asking if there could be potentially or if there could be uh, a forgiveness or a delay on paying property taxes for the properties that don't have people back living in them yet. Uh, what has the response to that been? Property tax and uh, parcel taxes are set by the provincial government. The city carries through the edict that the provincial government gives to us, so we are not allowed to play with taxes. Now, if we wanted to change the parcel tax, which Ms. Ferris is asking for, that would require us to hold a uh, council meeting where we would do three readings, then take it to public process, and then vote on it, change the bylaw to cover for one person. We're not going to do that. We have a bylaw that is set by provincial government. And in the bylaw, and the bylaws are 2259, the water parcel tax, and 2260, the sewer parcel tax. And it is clearly written that these are provincially driven and cannot be altered. So we are just doing what we're told to do. But here's the thing. We find out in 2022 that Miss Ferris was forgiven her parcel tax on a situation that never came to council. So we have that with legal right now to find out how that happened. That should have been a motion through council, and it wasn't. So some, you know, somehow it happened where she didn't pay her parcel tax. That's not right. That's against the law. So we'll have to have that looked at with legal right now to find out how that happened. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, there are uh, a lot of, of things to deal with. And like you said off the top, but one of the major ones waiting for that federal funding. Uh, again, do you have any idea when that funding might come or have they given you any indication on when you might be getting that? You know, it, it, uh, it is the bane of my existence. Um, no. And the thing is, is we had Minister Blair was the minister at the time, and now it's changed to Minister Sajan. Uh, we repeatedly ask every week on any kind of anything. Um, and short of actually storming the uh, House of Commons floor, um, I'm not sure how we're going to get an answer. And that's why we're now going to the provincial ministers to say, hey, we need a hand here. We, we need anything. Just say, hey, we got your application, and we're going through it. Like, our application is 165 pages. It is 
absolutely perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It is, it, it is a, it, the easiest thing to go through because they did all the work, and yet we haven't heard one thing. And we're at the second anniversary going into the third anniversary. We're working with dikes that are uh, damaged and some that aren't even there. Uh, Ms. Ferris made a comment that, it's been, you know, that we haven't done anything with the dikes. We're, we work on this every single day. But we, we don't have the equipment or the knowledge. And when you do start working on dikes, you have to have First Nations input. You have to have DFO input. You can't just start throwing rocks all over the place. You have to have cultural monitors there to make sure that any ground that's being moved isn't sensitive or has any kind of archaeological discoveries in it. There's a big process here. And that's why we have an ROC, a Recovery Operations Centre, because they deal with us every single day. But trust me, we have a meeting with Minister or with the Jackie Taggart next week, and that's where we'll start to make the move on the federal government for some answers, because we have to have some answers. We have 37 families waiting for an answer, and they need to get on with their lives, and it's ridiculously unfair that they haven't been bought out and been able to get on with their lives at this point in time. All right, Mayor Michael Getz, I appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.